Take your Bibles and uh, turn with me, please, to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. The book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Our text this morning is going to be found in verse 32 and going through the opening verses of chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 2. Sixteen-year-old Debbie Quavos was sitting in front of the river on a quiet, calm summer evening drinking a chocolate milkshake with her 20-year-old boyfriend, Mark Brewster. He had a peanut butter milkshake. It was a leisurely evening in Madisonville, Louisiana, when suddenly the calm quiet of the summer evening was violently punctured by a gun barrel being thrust through the window on the driver's side. Mark and Debbie were abducted at gunpoint. Mark was eventually stabbed, tied to a tree, and shot and left for dead. Debbie was raped three times and was eventually let go 30 hours after the terrifying ordeal began. The story of Debbie Quayos, however, became adapted in a book that became a movie entitled Dead Man Walking, directed by the always liberal Tim Robbins and his partner Susan Sarandon, who won an Academy Award for Best Actress, and uh, the supporting actor was Sean Penn. The story is not exactly accurate, however. If you've seen the movie, it's an amalgamation adaptation of real-life events. That's uh, not the end of the story. Robert Willie was eventually electrocuted, but that's not the end of the story either. Years later, Debbie Quavos, now married and whose name is Morris, penned a riveting sequel to the story. It's entitled, Forgiving the Dead Man Walking. The hours that Debbie endured at these two thugs' hands were followed by years of walking, down a lonely road of anger, bitterness, and unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, clearly, obviously, that's explainable toward Robert Willie and Joseph Vaccaro, but she candidly admits even unforgiveness toward God. She found it easier to forgive the perpetrators, she said, than she found it easier to forgive God. She wrote the sequel. Eventually, the grace of God came through and smashed the barriers of unforgiveness And she was able to release the events. She was able to release the perpetrators. She was able to surrender the entire situation into the hands of the Lord. Her story and your story and my story could be retold on several accounts. And one of those accounts would be the challenge, the issue, the tough task of forgiving. It's an issue that we all face. If we haven't faced it today, we will eventually face it because we live in a fallen world that's marked by sin and misery. Sometimes we are the offender, sometimes we're those who are offended against, but the issue of forgiveness is an important one. In fact, I think you could arguably say that forgiveness may be our greatest spiritual need. The Bible is fixated, focused on forgiveness, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, all the way to the last book of the Bible. And in between, we have prophets promising forgiveness, we have a savior, a mediator who's predicted that would come bringing forgiveness. We have the proclamation of Christ in the Gospels, the continued proclamation of the apostles and the letters of the apostles that we call epistles, all with a theme woven through it on the subject matter and the issue of forgiveness. Forgiveness plays a major role in our relationship with God, obviously. But forgiveness plays a major role in our relationship with other people, obviously. 
It's crucial then on such an important issue, an issue that strikes so close to the quick of our soul that we understand something about forgiveness and what God says in his word about forgiveness. The text this morning is brief, and I'll admit to you on the front end, it does not answer comprehensively comprehensively every question that you and I may raise on the issue of the subject matter of forgiveness. But it's an important word. And it begins in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us and offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The text is brief, but it's penetrating because it's clear. God calls you and he calls me to embody forgiveness, to embody what it means to be forgiven and to embody what it means to be forgiving to those who sinned against us. Biblical forgiveness is not feeling it's not forgetting, because I don't know that that's entirely possible. It's an act. It's a promise. It's an act and a promise that I make you, that I will not remember your sins against you. I will not remember your offense against you. I will not, practically speaking, that means that I will not bring up the sin or the offense to you again. It means that I will not bring it up in a form of accusation or slander to other people again. And it means that, as far as possible... I will restore or reconcile the relationship and will not let it hinder our relationship. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It can't be rooted in feelings. Forgiveness is not simply forgetting that the, the whole event happened. Forgiveness is principally and primarily a promise. A promise rooted in grace. A promise rooted in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That I will not hold your sin that you committed against me, your offense, your word, your act that you committed against me again. And I believe the text lays a solid foundation for that kind of choice empowered by the Spirit and obedience to God. Notice in the, the opening verse, chapter 4, verse 32, I think the apostle is saying, and God through the apostle is saying that forgiveness flows from our experience of the grace of God. The context of the passage is saturated with grace. In fact, the entire book of Ephesians is saturated with grace. The larger context celebrates the rich grace of God to us in Christ. Paul begins in chapter 1 with a, with a burst of praise, thanking God for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He praises God for the kind of grace that blesses us with Election, being chosen by the Father, being redeemed by the Son, being brought into the family of God, adoption, brought into the family of God in which He assumes responsibility for us. The kind of grace that He says in Ephesians 1.13 that seals us with the Holy Spirit until a coming day of redemption in which we will be made fully like the Lord Jesus Christ, both in soul as well as in body. In chapter 2, Paul continues on the theme of grace. He says, this is what we were like apart from Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world. That is, we were driven by fallen affections and desires. We were dominated and driven by the prince of the power of the air. 
And because of that, in Ephesians 2, he says we were doomed objects of God's just and holy wrath. We were without hope in this life and without hope in the life to come. And there's this great conjunction in Ephesians 2, and I think it's in verse 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made you alive together with Christ. He seated you with Christ in heavenly places. And in the ages to come, he's going to unfold the riches of his grace to you in Christ. So the theme of grace abounds in the book, in the larger context. But it even abounds in chapter 4 in the more near or more immediate context, in which Paul is now talking not about the riches of grace, but about the responsibilities of grace. You and I are forgiven people. That's what makes us unique. Is because God has forgiven us of our sins and such a profound forgiveness that the scripture says that he removes them as far as the east is from the west. He blots them out as with a thick cloud. Or Micah 7 says he drops them into the sea. That is, they're never remembered against us again. You and I are forgiven people. That's what makes us unique. But with that forgiveness comes a gospel response, a, a gospel responsibility to, to live not only as a forgiven people, but also the greater challenge, perhaps, to live as a forgiving people. And so in chapter 4, Paul begins to outline what it is to respond to the grace of God. These are imperatives, if you will. Commands rooted in grace, rooted in the gospel. We've moved from what God has done to how we respond to what God has done. And this is how he describes it in Ephesians 4, 24 and 25. He talks about putting off the old life that we had apart from Christ. We lay it aside like we would a dirty garment and we put on new life in Christ. We lay aside the old self. That is what we are apart from Christ and grace. And we put on a new life that's found in Christ, that's characterized by grace. And then the Lord begins to address specific behaviors in chapter 4. Things that may yet remain in our life. For example, in verse 25, he says, stop lying and speak the truth. In verse 26, stop the unrighteous, unjust anger. Of course, all my anger is righteous and just. I'm, as I'm sure yours is as well. Just the very insinuation makes me angry. Um, we, we, we move from stealing to not only working, but sharing with those who have a need in verse 28. We stop the unwholesome speech, the corrupt speech, and we, our vocabulary is changed and, and our words are changed. And now they're gracious words and they edify and build up those with whom we're in conversation and communication. And then notice in verses 30, 31, and 32, he begins to deal with some real dispositional sins of bitterness and quarreling and those kinds of issues. Because he says in verse 30, it grieves or saddens the Holy Spirit. And then he comes down to verse 32 and he talks about this issue of forgiveness. Forgiveness. As a result of the fall and their own sinful choices and upbringing and and uh, heredity and history and so on. We have deeply ingrained patterns of behavior, default modes, if you will. And we easily fall into those default modes that evidence the remnants of indwelling sin. And so God graciously, because of the gospel and in grace, God graciously begins to confront us with those deeply rooted behaviors and sins and issues. Uh, 
truth-telling, greed, anger, lust, and unforgiveness. And the grace of God is the basis for dealing with all of it. Because we've tasted of the grace of God. Because we've tasted of the kindness and goodness of God. And notice how God begins to deal with the whole issue of unforgiveness or forgiveness. He takes us to the cross. He takes us to Christ. He shows us the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. And in that light, he calls us from the hard-heartedness of unforgiveness to the tenderness of a forgiving spirit. Again, in verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In other words, we forgive because we are a forgiven people. We forgive in the light of the cross. We forgive in the power of the cross. As the Holy Spirit of God applies the work of the Lord Jesus to our lives, His message and its truth. When God calls us to be a forgiving people, He calls us to be a forgiving person. Let's just don't make it broad. Let's bring it down to one another. You know, Charlie Brown says, I love the world. It's my neighbor I'm having trouble with. When God calls us not simply to be a forgiving people, a community of the Spirit that's characterized by truth and sharing and generosity and forgiveness. No, let's make it more personal than that. When God calls you to be a forgiving person, He does so in the historical light of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I forgave you of far greater offenses. And now I'm calling you in the light of that to be of forgiving people. In fact, I would say that your forgiving others is directly rooted in and reflective of God's grace as fully revealed in Christ. Notice the little word forgiving in verse 32. It's a participle in the Greek text. It's something similar in our text, but it's a word that is directly derived from grace. The word charis. It's a participial form of Grace of charis. And it simply means this, that forgiveness is not stingy. It's not pride from a clenched fist. It's not voiced through gritted teeth. It is gracious. It is eager. It is generous. It is wholehearted. It is prompted by Calvary's grace. It's rooted in the grace of God revealed to us fully in Christ. Perhaps the greatest parable The greatest parabolic illustration of forgiveness or unforgiveness is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, of the servant who had a debt that was absolutely unpayable. Let's say it was a million dollars. And the king grabbed him and said, pay me the debt. And he said, I can't. And he pleaded for mercy after being threatened to be thrown into debtor's prison. And the man forgave the debt. He released the debt. And immediately the forgiven man went out and grabbed the man who owed him not a million dollars, not a debt that could not be paid, but let's say a debt of one hundred dollars, and said, pay me what you owe. And he begged and pleaded and said, I cannot pay you. Please have mercy. And he had no mercy on the man, had no grace on the man, but grabbed him by the collar and threw him into prison. And the parable turns on this. Jesus says... Such is the case with those who live and practice unforgiveness. They have forgotten the debt that was forgiven 
And they live as ungraced people. Ungraced people. Such is not the case for those of us who've tasted of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Such is not the case of us who understand something of the passion of Christ. That the ever only innocent person suffered in our stead, the just for the unjust. That the holy spotless lamb of God was offered up for our sins. That he was bruised for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace fell upon him. Such is not the case for those whose lives are rooted and anchored in grace. Because we know the forgiving grace of God. Ian McMillan wrote a historical novel called Orbit of Darkness. It's said in 1941 in the Nazi prison camp Auschwitz. And he tells the story in the historical novel of Maximilian Kolbe, a Roman Catholic priest. Ten prisoners had attempted to escape and an enraged German commandant herded all the camp together and rather calmly and coolly in a detached but determined and brutal matter, manner began to selectively pick out ten people that he would systematically starve to death for retribution. He pulled one man out of the line, and the man fell to his knees and began to beg and plead for mercy. For my family's sake, for my wife's sake, for my children's sake, please, please, I beg you to have mercy upon me. Suddenly a man of slight stature stepped from the crowd, and the Germans, being surprised by the movement, leveled their submachine guns on the man, and they realized that it was the, the priest the priest, and he stepped forward and approached the commandant, and he said, Please let me take the place of this man. I beg you, let me take the place of this man. And a stunned German commandant, whose heart briefly melted, said, You take his place then. And the observer of that scene, the writer, the observer of that scene said, The priest's face and his act burned in my mind and in my heart. An act of grace, an act of substitution. I tell you that when Calvary's grace is burned into our hearts, when it's burned into our minds, grace becomes abounding for those who've sinned against us because we know another stepped forward and took our place and spared us from eternal damnation and judgment. The only innocent man suffered in my guilty stead, in my guilty place. Forgiveness flows from our experience of the grace of God in Christ. Have you tasted of His grace? Do you revel in His grace? Are you awash in the grace of God? Is your life characterized by one who has been forgiven? Does your life exude, exemplify that kind of grace? Forgiveness not only flows flows from our experience of the grace of God, but it also follows the example of our Father in verse 1 of chapter 5. God calls us in the text to be His imitators, to be like Him. The English word mimic is derived from this Greek word translated imitators. You know, a mimic copies other people. Melinda and I were talking. Apparently there's a new show on TV. There's always a new show, isn't there? There was a new show on TV. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but Melinda saw the, the um, my wife Melinda saw the preview, the trailer for it, <clears throat> about uh, mimics or, or uh, impersonators, I guess you could say. Uh, it made me wonder whatever happened to Rich Little. You remember that guy? It seems like he could do everybody. 
Well, a mimic, an impersonator, someone who copies the voices or characteristics of other people. We're all natural imitators. We all imitate or copy someone to some degree or another. That's how we learn life, and that's often how we learn about leadership, is by mimic or copying other people, good or bad examples. Growing up um, in Nashville in the fifth and sixth grade, uh, played baseball all through school, all through high school. But when I was a kid, we'd play pickup baseball games in a cove, a cul-de-sac off of uh, James Road, James Court in Nashville, West Nashville. And we would have all-star games, and you had to bat like the person uh, on your team. You know, if you named whoever you were, if you were Mickey Mantle, Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, or Carl Yastrzemski, or Pete Rose. If you're Pete Rose, you had to be a switch hitter. Anyway, you assumed their stance. Whatever their distinctive stance was, you said, I am, and you assumed their stance. Great fun. Girls imitate their moms. You may have pictures of your children with, with the girls wearing makeup or in high heels or wearing your dresses. If you have pictures of your sons, I want to see you after church. Um, you may have pictures of, of your sons in their father's clothes or in daddy's shoes. I've got an old black and white picture of me with my father's suit on and in a hat that he used to wear. We've got a picture of our son Ryan in a pair of work boots that engulfed him. And now when sometimes I go out and get the paper, I slip on his his sandals or shoes that are always at the back door, always at the back door. And uh, now he couldn't fit in my shoes, and now I can't fit in his shoes. We imitate people. Well, the object of imitation in this text is God our Father. And I tell you that you and I are never more imitative of our Father than we when we are in the, in the act of the process of being a forgiving people. We're never more like our Father. We've not been called to be omniscient. We can't be. We've not been called to be omnipotent. We can't be. We've not been called to be omnipresent. We can't be. But in this text, he calls us to be his imitators. And I believe the context would argue for the kind of love that expresses itself in forgiveness. We imitate our father because we're his beloved children. Because he's lavished abundant, generous, paternal love upon us. The relationship calls us to imitation. He's brought us into the family, Ephesians 1. He's poured out redeeming love upon us. In sending his son to die in our place, he's adopted us into his family. He's given us his character, his nature, his spirit, his word, his truth. The whole of the Christian life is simply the reproduction of godliness in our lives. According to the pattern son, the son, all capital letters, our savior and elder brother, Jesus The imitation of God as his beloved children in this text, I think, points to forgiveness. Interestingly enough, the word forgiving in verse 32 again. That particular form of the word is used four times in the Bible. It's used twice in the Old Testament of God in Exodus 34, verse 7, in Numbers 14, verse 18, in which it talks about the abounding mercy of God that is long-suffering and kind and patient Forgiving iniquities. It's used two times of believers, those who are in the father's family, those who are in a relationship with the father, who have his nature and his spirit filling them. It's used here in Ephesians 4.32. It's used in Colossians 3.13. God forgives you and me through Christ and 
gives us a promise. He says, I will not remember your sins no more. That does not mean that God forgets your sins. How can omniscience ever forget a single thing? If the hairs upon your head are numbered, it's getting easier every year to number mine. If the hairs on your head are numbered, some of you, it's real easy. <laughs> um, how could he ever forget anything? It's not forgetting is a passive thing. It's an accidental thing. You forget because of whatever reason. But remembering is an active thing. He says, I will not remember. That is, I will not hold your sins against you again. And so it's that kind of forgiveness that he calls us to. William Hendrickson, a commentator, said, The child who's the object of love will be the most eager imitator of those who love him. I love the little story in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 7. Jesus is dining with a Pharisee. And a woman of ill repute, an immoral woman, a woman whose, whose bad choices and sinful decisions line her face like a road map, comes in and hears the gracious words of Jesus. And she begins to weep so profusely that her tears begin to fall and bathe the feet of Jesus. And she undoes her hair. And the self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisee says, if he knew what kind of woman this was... He wouldn't even tolerate her presence, let alone her bathe his feet with her tears or wipe or dry off his feet with her hair. And Jesus looks at Simon and he says, I have something to say to you. And here's the short of it. He says, he who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven much loves much. Could it be that we forget about how much we've been forgiven, how much we needed to be forgiven, how much today that remains in our lives that continually needs to be forgiven? Robert Falconer, a missionary, was reading this story in a little village in which he had been sharing the gospel. And as he's reading the story, a thin, frail young woman begins to gently weep. And so at one point he stopped and he offered her words of encouragement and asked why she was weeping. And she said, sir, I'm weeping because if this man ever comes to me, my hair is not long enough to dry his feet. See, that's the spirit. That's the large heartedness that says, I have been forgiven. How dare I hold it? Against you, we imitate God in forgiveness, not passively, but actively saying to others, I will not remember your sin. I will not remember your offense, word or act against you. It's a promise. I'll not bring it up to you. I'll not bring it before other people. And as far as possible, I'll reconcile the relationship. There's a third thing here, though, not just forgiveness rooted in grace, the experience of grace, not just following the example of our father, but Finally, in verse 2, forgiveness focuses on the love of God in Christ. The little word walk there, an imperative, a command, says that the whole tenor of our lives is to be marked by the love of God. It's the characteristic word of Christianity. It's the pattern of walking in love that's most clearly illustrated in the Lord Jesus. Because in verse 2, it says, Christ who loved you and gave himself up for you. This is the kind of love that's poured out in our hearts. Romans 5 says at conversion. It's the kind of love the Holy Spirit cultivates and produces in our lives as a fruit of his indwelling presence in Galatians 5. 
It's not a feeling. It's not an inclination. It doesn't run according to our natural inclination. But it's a spirit-empowered commitment and choice to act and speak and do loving actions and deeds. And here is a subject that's so hard to understand how this could ever fill our lives. That Paul, and I get this, just make a little note or a little mental note of this. That Paul prays for us. He prays for us in Ephesians 3, verses 15 through 21. He says, I bow before the Father in heaven that you would come to know the love of Christ, which is beyond knowing. It's too wide. It's too high. It's too deep. But, oh, may you come to know it. And it's in that context that Paul says God's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to his power that works in us. What's the subject of the prayer? Coming to know the love of Christ. He says, God delights to answer that prayer. Oh, God, fill us with the love of Christ. And God's pleased to give what he commands. That's the nature of grace. He gives the enabling power that demonstrates itself in a willing forgiveness. The ability to, in fact, the ability to be forgiving finds its compelling motive and power in God, not in us. If you're looking in your heart to forgive someone, you're looking in the wrong place. It's, you won't find it there. You have to look at God in Christ. You have to look at the cross. You have to look at Jesus. Because you'll not find it in your own heart. You'll find it in the heart of God. There are three commands in the text. Be kind. Be imitators of God. And walk in love. And if you were to put those in a placard on your office wall, your bedroom wall, your study wall, wherever, your garage, they are nothing but empty moralisms. Because in your own self, you can't be kind. In your own self, you can't be an imitator of God. And I know that in my own strength and ability, I could never walk in love. And I want you to notice this very quickly in closing. That each of the commands is anchored in the prior grace-filled acts of God. In other words, be kind. Why and how? Because God has forgiven you in Christ in Ephesians 4.32. Be his imitator. Why and how? Because you are his beloved children in chapter 5, verse 1. Walk in love. Why and how? Because Christ has given himself up for you. You see, the commands are not empty moralisms. They're rooted in the prior grace-filled acts of God. In other words, we forgive others because we've been forgiven of greater offenses. We forgive because we're beloved people who've experienced a fullness of love that is steady, constant, redemptive, and transformative. We forgive because the love of Christ for us is so clearly, visibly illustrated at the cross of Calvary. Bruce Marikami lost his wife, Cheryl, and a daughter in a terrible, fiery crash in November of 1998 in Florida. They were the innocent victims of a reckless street racing incident. Bruce was filled and consumed with a desire to bring the 17-year-old perpetrator, Justin Gutierrez, to justice. It's all he could think about. It's what he lived for. And slowly the process And events led to the trial and conviction began to seize Bruce's life and heart as he saw the 17-year-old young man seated over there with his gently sobbing family seated behind him. 
And he reached out to the young man and he realized that in this case, full justice would destroy the 17-year-old Justin Guterres' life. It would also destroy his family's life. And so against every natural inclination and conviction, he reached out to the young man and he forgave him. And he forgave him in the strength and power of grace alone. And the horrible, horrible, irreplaceable incident was redemptively transformed as Bruce Marikami and Justin Gutierrez formed a foundation for safe driving and began to speak to school assemblies and churches and youth groups. My only point is this. If Bruce had looked within his own heart, he would not have found the power, the compelling motive, or the ability. If Debbie Cuevas had looked in her own heart, she would not have found the compelling power and motive to forgive and release the horrific crime that very nearly destroyed her life. But she looked to God in Christ, and there she found both the motive and the power. In a terrible act of violence, her life was nearly destroyed. And in a remarkable act of grace, her life and future were transformed. Bruce Marikami's story became a Hallmark movie. It's called Crossroads, a story of forgiveness. You have a story, too. A story of forgiveness. A story of God's forgiveness of you because of Christ. And on that basis, he called you to embody what it means to be a forgiven person. And what it means to be a forgiving person. And he does that on the basis of taking us to his love for us in Christ at Calvary. What would your obedience look like if you were to forgive someone today? What would it look like? It would be a choice that you make, empowered by the cross and by the Spirit of Christ, to no longer hold the offense, the act, the thought, the word, the deed against a person. And it would take concrete steps to not speak of it again to them, to not bring it up in accusation and slander to other people, and as far as possible, to mend the fences of the relationship. Can you do it? No. Not in yourself. But you can obey the command of God to be forgiving when you look at His heart and when you're filled with His grace and His love. Freely, willingly, wholeheartedly, eagerly forgiving because that's how God has forgiven you for Christ's sake. You say, Jeff, it's too costly. So was God's. You say, it's too painful. So was God's. You say, it's too sacrificial. So was God's. So was God's. Might we do it as a people who've tasted of the grace of God for the glory of God, for the good of those to whom we hold unforgiveness and for the good of our own souls? Fathers, we bow before you in prayer this morning. I pray that the words of this text would be applied to the transformation of our hearts and our souls and for the glory of Christ. Grant it, Father, for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.